homemade bone stock soup from organic chickens or organic beef. That's like your foundational soup. And, you know, warm, you can drink it like a hot cup of tea. But, you know, you do that for a day or two and see what happens to your energy levels and your thought processes. And then maybe you build that diet and maybe the next day you add something to it like broccoli or cauliflower, one item. You're building a diet of high energy foods that are good for you. And everybody's different. So what works for you might be different than what, you know, for someone else in your very same household. You are listening to The Dr. Haley Show, the podcast dedicated to helping you optimize your health. Each episode, there will be an interview or a message to help you discover better health. We will be featuring health radicals on the show to bring new ideas to the table, as well as doubling down on key fundamentals to support you living your best life. Your host is no other than the founder of Haley Nutrition, Dr. Michael Haley. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Haley, and I have a viewer question. It is, how do you overcome brain fog? (sighs) I forgot what I was talking about. Oh, brain fog. (laughs) Does that happen to you? With all seriousness, how do you overcome brain fog? What causes it? You know, some people think about taking stimulants, coffee to, you know, help make things fire and wake people up and have more alertness. And yes, there are things that you can take to stimulate thought processes. Some people might even use medications, drugs to take them to new faraway places to help their creative thinking. This is not about that. It's not about taking stimulants. This is about maximizing your health so things work like they're supposed to. What do I mean by that? Well, when it comes to diet, when it comes to the food that you eat, certain things are going to make you crash, maybe. You know, for certain people, they eat these foods and then 20 minutes later, it's nap time because maybe their sugar levels are uh, affected and they're out of balance, and they stop thinking clearly, and it makes them tired. Other foods probably give them a lot of energy. The problem is no one takes enough time to figure out which foods feed the brain, their brains, and which ones take away from their cognitive ability. When you pay attention to these things, when you, you know, if you ever do an elimination diet, what's that? You get rid of everything, but uh, let's do Dr. Natasha McBride's elimination diet with the GAPS diet for sake of example. Imagine that you get rid of everything and the only thing you have is bone stock soup, homemade, not the stuff you buy in the store that has 10 ingredients, homemade bone stock soup from organic chickens or organic beef. And, you know, you simmer the bones down and everything that's left after the meat was taken off. And then you run it through a strainer after simmering it for, you know, eight to 10 hours. And what's left, that gelatin stuff, if you put it in the refrigerator, it thickens up like a gelatin. Well, that's like your foundational soup. And, you know, warm, you can drink it like a hot cup of tea. And you're getting all kinds of healthy amino acids and glucosamines and chondroitins off the cartilages of the joints and things that are going to essentially help heal your gut and and help heal your arthritic conditions and give you the sufficient fat for sustenance. 
it's enough to survive on. And if you need more, just have more of it if you're hungry and you can't bear it. But, you know, you do that for a day or two and see what happens to your energy levels and your thought processes. And then maybe you build that diet and maybe the next day you add something to it like broccoli or cauliflower, one item, because you're building a diet and you're testing it. And if you get brain fog, that goes on the naughty list. Or if you get irritable bowel or, or you know, some kind of problem in your gut or pain or whatever it is, if it doesn't sit right with you, that food goes back out and then you try the next food and you gradually build this good list of foods that make you feel good and this bad list of foods that irritate the way you feel. So, or interrupt your sleep or whatever the case is, you're building a diet of high energy foods that are good for you and everybody's different. So what works for you might be different than what, you know, for someone else in your very same household. Hopefully we all have similar genetics and we can make similar food for all of us in the same household, but might not be the case. It's not always the case. We're all individuals. We're all different. So you build your diet, you test your foods, you log them. Imagine three columns and one is a date and timestamp and the other is what you ate. And the third column is how you feel digestion wise or whatever the case is. And sometimes you make entries when you don't eat, but you just want to say, man, I think I'm thinking really clearly right now, or I have all kinds of energy and strength, or I'm feeling weak and sluggish, or I'm constipated or bloating or diarrhea. And then we develop these patterns, you know, it might be an hour after I eat this food, I crash. Or an hour after I eat this food, I feel really good, real strong. We develop patterns, and as we recognize those, pat those patterns, we can recognize which foods are contributing to the good patterns and which ones are contributing to the bad patterns. That's how we build our own personal custom diet. Now, six months from now, you might take a food off of the naughty list and try it, insert it back into the good list, and see what happens. Because your body may have changed six months from now. And what was once no good for you might work very well for you. So you can, it's an evolving diet that you continually test and know what's good for you at that point in time. Uh, the other thing, you know, if you think about it, well, what if you're not sleeping well? Some people are not getting enough rest and they wake up tired and it's not brain fog it's more fatigue that things just aren't firing because our chemistry wasn't changed during the night with a good night's sleep uh, maybe exercise is missing you know which also changes body chemistry you know people have these runners high and they feel really good after exercise and that same runner's high that makes them feel good during the day might cause them to need good rest at night affecting how they sleep these things all work together. You know, if you're somebody that likes to, you know, argue and you're angry all the time, that might completely drain your energy and cause brain fog. Or you might be one of those happy people that's always lifting people up and you got this positive energy about you and you feel great and the neurons are firing and you don't have brain fog. All of these things work together, causing good chemistry or bad chemistry. And the bad chemistry is going to be what causes the brain fog. The good chemistry is going to be the high energy. I'm thinking clearly. You know, I, I feel great. I'm happy. So uh, how do you overcome brain fog? Test your diet. Get enough rest. 
exercise. There's lots of different kinds of exercise. You know, there's stretching, there's muscle training, there's endurance, there's detoxifying, uh, nutrition, exercise, rest, mental well-being. And a lot of the physical stress can also be eliminated through things like, you know, chiropractic, massage, acupuncture, yoga. Uh, it, all of these things work together to make good chemistry in the body so that you don't have brain fog. It's about optimizing who you are. And we have another question, and that is, can the effects of a stroke, memory loss, etc., be cured? The effects of a stroke. What is a stroke? A stroke is when blood flow to the brain is cut off. And it might be from a blood clot that gets in the way from the blood flow, and the blood flow doesn't make it to the tissues. So the tissues, the brain cells, are no longer getting the oxygen they need to survive, and they die. And whatever function those cells were responsible for could be impaired or completely changed and lost. A vessel might burst, and the blood flow no longer makes it to the destination. That would be a hemorrhagic stroke. And, you know, again... Blood flow doesn't make it, so the cells are impaired or died. The cells die. Uh, the functions are impaired or lost. And it doesn't matter whether those cells are killed off because of alcohol poisoning, you know, trauma, stroke. When the cells are dead, the cells are dead. And when the functions are impaired um, they, or lost, yes, they can be retrained. The most important thing is stopping the damage. So the sooner someone's treated for a stroke, the better. Medications might be used to dissolve a clot, for instance, restoring blood flow, getting blood flow to those tissues as fast as possible to prevent additional cells from being killed off. In the case of a hemorrhagic stroke, you know, medical intervention, surgery might be needed to restore the vessel to stop the bleeding, to stop the damage. In the case of alcohol poisoning, kind of stop the alcohol poisoning. And, you know, essentially when the brain cells are lost, they're lost. And whatever functions they were responsible for are going to be diminished or lost. But other cells may still be helping perform those functions. And other brain cells could also be recruited to better do those functions. There was a point in time when we all learned how to walk and talk. And those functions had never been in place but somehow our brains recruited cells and made connections that allowed for those functions. And those functions can be relearned using other brain cells. And when it comes to memory, well, this is a little bit different because the memories are probably still in there somewhere. And there's different kinds of memories. There's short-term memory and long-term memory. Someone might have short-term memory loss. They might Go way back to childhood, remember something, and tell you in a story. And then minutes later, they might tell you again because they, short-term memory loss, forgot that they just told you that story. Or So in a short-term uh, memory loss, it might be, you know, um, what's your name? Oh, it's so nice to meet you. What's your name? You know, and they don't remember what just happened. And yes, those things can be relearned and restored as the brain recruits other cells and we make new connections to make things work like they're supposed to. 
memory training, there may be um, therapy that can actually help with those things, just like therapy can help someone learn to walk again. And the more you practice, the more those connections are made, kind of like playing an instrument. You, you don't read music the first time and your you know, fingers hit all the right notes or you know, whatever instrument it is. But as you practice, 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 the connections are made better and better and better, and there's muscle memory, and things work more like they're supposed to. In the case of training memories, you know, it might be reminiscing with family and friends and maybe looking at photos or listening to familiar music or, you know, maybe even um, handling certain objects from your past that meant a lot to you to help restore those uh, memories, those thought processes, and make those connections so they can become in your consciousness. In any case, there are professionals in this area that can teach you to do this in a way that is most conducive to restoring as much function as possible, whether it's walking and talking or remembering things. Um, so, number one, stop the damage. And number two, therapy to restore those functions and retrain the connections to work as good as possible. I have another question. Can HIV be cured? You know, human immunodeficiency virus at some point in time for some people as it takes over the immune system and the virus numbers get so high and the immune counts, the immune cells get to a certain point, we might call it AIDS or acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. And there is no known cure for HIV or AIDS. However, there is treatments to pretty much stop its progress stop it its, and even reverse its progress, that is to decrease the virus count and increase the immune cells, making it as if the virus isn't there. So it's completely manageable for most people. Now, in some people, the treatments fail to work. AIDS will inhibit people's ability to fight infections and illnesses and untreated is a serious problem for a lot of people. Some people might actually have HIV, not even know it, and never even develop symptoms. Not that we really know how many in the population because really uh, not everyone's tested for it. There's probably people carrying it that have had the virus and their immune systems for whatever reason are staying on top of it and they actually never have the symptoms, never get tested, never even test positive. So we even still don't know enough information about this because we haven't, you know, really done the studies and tested large portions of the population to see if that's even the case and then followed the people over time. A lot of people, when they find out that they are testing positive, are going to jump right into a treatment program to prevent the progress of it. So, you know, the real data is not there. For those being treated, if they stop treatment, they can probably likely expect symptoms to come back for virus counts to go up and for the immune counts, the immune cells, immune markers to go down. You know, there's been people that have tried to manage it naturally and, you know, I'm going to eat a real clean diet and do all these right things and take super nutrient dense foods and not 
many people, if any, have actually had success in doing that. And most eventually end up taking the medical route, which at this point in time seems to be the smartest. However, there is certainly hope in nutraceuticals and medications, but I would hope that eventually nutraceuticals are studied to the point where we know what foods would benefit people even more than medications. Um, I was looking up this nutrient the other day just to see what uh, Wikipedia had to say about it, and ace manin is something that's found in aloe vera. And let's take a look at what it says on Wikipedia. Ace manin is a D-isomer mucopolysaccharide in aloe vera leaves. This compound has potential immunostimulant, antiviral, antineoplastic, and gastrointestinal properties. Under the immunostimulant properties, it says Ace manin has been demonstrated to induce macrophages to secrete interferon, IFN, tumor necrosis factor, TNF, and interleukins. Therefore, it might help prevent or abrogate viral infection. These three cytokines are known to cause inflammation, and interferon is released in response to viral infections. In vitro studies have shown Ace manin to inhibit HIV replication. However, in vivo studies have been inconclusive, which means not enough studies have been performed to draw any conclusions, but more studies would certainly be beneficial, so we could draw a conclusion one way or the other. ACE Manin is currently being used for treatment and clinical ma management of fibrosarcoma in dogs and cats. Administration of ACE Manin has been shown to increase tumor necrosis. Tumors like cancer, necrosis is death to, and prolonged host survival the animals have demonstrated lymphoid infiltration and encapsulation. So, you know, um, th this is only one example of a nutrient that may or may not prove to be beneficial. The point being is more research needs to be done. Um, who's going to do it? You know, when you can't patent a food or an herb, um, I wish we would spend more money in these areas and figure out how to support health naturally and improve our immune system with food, if it's at all possible. I think it is, we just don't know which foods for what conditions and what they all do yet because no one's dumping the money into it to figure it out. And I have another subscriber question that says, and this is from Lisa, I just ordered the aloe for my 12-year-old son with severe IBS, or irritable bowel syndrome. I need to make it palatable for him, but don't want to include ingredients in the drink smoothie that might hinder his success with healing IBS. What is ideal for an IBS aloe smoothie that a 12-year-old boy would still enjoy drinking? We don't drink dairy either, so I would be using plant-based milks or water, coconut water. Lisa, that's a great question, and um, it would probably not be the one I'm drinking, which has some wheatgrass in it, and uh, for me, frozen mango and even a banana. But the key in this is finding foods that work with him first. And, you know, really, if he does well with the aloe vera, the easiest thing to kill any bitterness is just a couple drops of stevia. Stevia's natural plant, very sweet flavor. 
and can kill the bitterness with just a couple drops and he can drink it straight and not put it in a smoothie and expand it so he has to drink so much more. And if it helps him get the results he wants, he'll actually look forward to drinking his aloe vera. But um, let's consider a principle in getting well from irritable bowel syndrome or acid reflux or any kind of, you know, Crohn's, whatever inflammatory bowel condition it is, identifying the foods that work for you and the ones that don't. So as an example, you know, you might start with something with an elimination diet and, and get rid of everything and only have maybe bone stock soup, broth, chicken broth, beef broth, as much as is needed to sustain you for a day or two as you're, you know, growing your list of foods that work for you. And, you know, when things kind of level out and you have good energy levels and clear thinking and digestion is smooth, maybe that day you add something to it, such as, you know, a vegetable like broccoli or cauliflower or asparagus or whatever, you know, one of your favorite vegetables, maybe spinach. You cook it up really good because it's easier to digest when it's cooked. If everything goes well, that food that you added stays on your good food list as you're building your list of good foods. And the next day you add something else to it and maybe another vegetable. Eventually you add a little chicken to it or beef even, like grass-fed beef. And you build your diet with foods that work for you. As soon as you add something to that that goes wrong, maybe it's uh, potatoes. And, you know, you, you're eating your soup with the potatoes in it for the first time. And, you know, an hour after eating it, you crash. Potatoes probably aren't good for you. Um, you know, you add carrots. It goes well. Eventually, you might, you know, since cooked carrots in the soup went well, you might have your soup with a, a side of carrots as you're building your diet. You might eventually, as things are good and you're building your diet, start trying different fruits. And when those go good for you, that might be something you want to add to the smoothie. So that's kind of how we think in terms of identifying which foods are you are, are good for you. And, you know, think about keeping a journal, a three-column journal, and there's a date and time stamp, what you're eating and how you feel. And the how you feel column is more than just digestion, high energy levels, clear thinking. I'm able to process things good. You know, when I'm at school and the teacher's teaching me, I'm able to receive when I'm in a conversation with people, my mind's not drifting. I'm able to focus. I have good energy. I'm not crashing. I don't need a nap after I eat. If you eat something and it makes you need a nap, chances are that's a food that's not working well for you. Now, you don't always have to make a food and a how you feel entry. Sometimes it's just a food entry. Sometimes it's a how you feel entry. Date and time, I feel real good. And it might, maybe you didn't eat anything for a couple hours. But you start seeing a pattern, you know, a couple hours after eating this particular food, I feel really good. That food's probably good for you. You start developing these patterns and realizing what works and what doesn't. And then your smoothies might be, you know, very simple, starting with, you know, one ingredient. I like to blend my smoothies, by the way, and then add the aloe at the end. Because if I put the aloe in first... Well, it kind of foams up, expands, and then you have just more to drink. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on The Dr. Haley Show. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you are listening to this. 
If this episode made you think of someone, go ahead, take a screenshot, and share this exact episode with them. You can catch the show notes for this episode on www.drhaley.com. If you want to geek out with Dr. Michael Haley on other radical health topics, be sure to check out his YouTube channel where he posts exclusive video content. All the details are at www.drhaley.com and we can't wait to hang out with you on the next episode.